0: If you have your Bibles or scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 12. Luke in chapter 12, we are going to continue our study on the Gospel of Luke in verses 8 through 12 today. Uh, If you don't have a scripture journal because uh, you weren't here when we started the series, you lost yours, or uh, something to that effect, we got more, so if you want one, uh, they are on the welcome desk there out in the foyer and those are $4 American if you want one of those. Uh, feel free to grab one now or before you leave today. Luke 12 is where we will be in 8 through 12. It will also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you. Follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke 12, starting verse 8, the Holy Spirit says, And I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, Everyone who acknowledges me before men... Or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Amen. It's God's word, and may God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. He was 86 years old when the soldiers came to arrest him. His followers wanted him to continue to hide, to move from house to house in order to avoid arrest. Even as the soldiers could be seen approaching the house, his followers urged him, flee. Uh, he would have none of that. His followers were uh, curious about how they had been found as well. After all, only a few people knew of their current location. How did these soldiers know where they were? When well, the soldiers entered the house. They told the old man he is going with them. He said he would go, but first, could he pray? They allowed this, and he ordered his followers to make a meal for the soldiers while he prayed, which they did. Well, after he was finished, the old man came out of his prayer room, and he climbed into the chariot to go with the soldiers, and the soldiers urged him all along the way to forsake Christ. They said, consider your age, they said. You you don't have to mean it. Just say it to spare your life. Well, the old man refused. On the way to the place of his trial, the chief of police met them there. Uh, He, too, urged the man to renounce Christ. What harm he said, is there to say that Caesar is Lord and throw a little pinch of incense on the altar? Think of your age, they appealed again. He once more refused, so they threw him off the speeding chariot, turned around, picked him up, and drove him into the arena, which was filled with frenzied crowd hoping to see a Christian die. As he stood before the judge, the judge pled with him once more, saying, have respect for your age. And other things that customarily follow this, such as, swear by the fortune of Caesar. Change your mind. Say, away with the atheists. The old man looked with an earnest face at the whole crowd of lawless heathen in the arena, and he motioned to them with his hand. Then he groaned, looked up to heaven, and said, away with the atheists. The crowd didn't like that, and they flew into a fever-pitched rage. The judge said once more, all you have to do is take the oath, and I will release you. Curse Christ, and you'll be free to go. Curse Christ, he said. To this the old man said, eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The judge threatened him, saying, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them if you don't change your mind. The old man said, call them. For repentance from better to worse is not permitted to us, but it is noble to change from what is evil to what is righteous. The judge then said, I shall have you consumed with fire if you despise the wild beasts, unless you change your mind. But the man said, The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. For you do not know the fire of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the impious. Why do you delay? Come, do what you will. With that, the man, whose name was Polycarp, was taken to the stake and burned alive before the watching crowd on account of his confession of Jesus as Lord and refusal to deny him before men. When brought before people and given the chance to choose Christ and death or reject Christ and live for a little longer, Polycarp chose Christ, and that testimony has endured for 1,900 years. Now, here's a question. How is it that Polycarp was discovered? He was moved a few times, even to his own dismay and protest. So how did the soldiers find him at this house that only a few knew about? Well, it was because a couple of his followers were caught by soldiers as well, and they were threatened with punishment. They were called to renounce Christ, tell the authorities where Polycarp was, and they did all of that. Before men, they denied Christ in order to preserve their lives, and in order to gain favor with the Roman powers that be, and they sold Polycarp out. Confess Christ before men... And face consequences or deny Christ before men, and not only circumvent consequences, but receive favor from men. These were the choices laid bare before Polycarp, before his followers, and every Christian at that time. Indeed, that was the choice uh, before Polycarp, immediately after Poly- Polycarp, and ever since. And I don't know about you, but when I read or hear stories like this, it leads me to ask difficult questions of myself. What would I do? You ever ask that? In such a situation, what would I do? Would I be like Polycarp? Or would I be like the traitors? Would I stand by Christ or would I crumble when such standing would be too costly? You ever ask yourself that? That's That's a tough question, isn't it? And it's the question that Jesus is asking in our text this morning. I think in our context, it would be easy to dismiss such a question as irrelevant and far-fetched. We can ask, when would I ever be in such a situation where my confessing or denying Christ would have martyrdom implications? But what if Jesus has more in mind than this? What if Jesus' idea of confession, acknowledgement before men, touches more than just the most extreme examples that we could think of? Well, let's explore this text and we'll see. So we jump back into Luke last week and in a new section that began in verse 1. In this section, we see Jesus turn to address the crowds, and he first begins with his disciples. And the emphasis of this section is the importance of seeking God's priorities okay, and agendas, Jesus exhorts his followers and his would-be followers to align their priorities and concerns with Christ and kingdom. And they could do that because they are entrusting their care and their fate to God. That's what this whole section is about. Another emphasis that we see in our text this morning that's a continuation of last week is the importance of fearing God and not man. When pressed, asked Jesus, Will you affirm your loyalty to me before men or deny me simply because you fear what people can do? Are you thinking of eternity or just your time on earth? We see these two options he gives in verse 8 and 9. Look at verse 8 and 9. Here are the two options. Either you confess Jesus before people or what? You deny Jesus before people. Therefore, says Jesus, you see his logic, either Jesus will confess your attachment to him before the Father and the angels, or he will deny you before the the Father and the angels. Or to put it another way, if you confess Christ on earth, Christ will confess you in heaven. If you deny Christ on earth, Christ will deny you in heaven. So we see that whether we confess Christ on earth or not has implications even in the heavenlies. Do you see that? That's the very first thing I want you to see. What we do in this life affects how we live in the next. There's an inseverable connection, in Jesus' words here, between this world and the world to come. And we can see a connection between this passage and the one we looked at last week, right, as well as the one that we'll look at next week if you just scan your word. Why fear men who can only affect your life on earth and not God who can ensure your eternal happiness. That's what we saw last week. The next section after this one, why, big build, why build big old storehouses for all your stuff while your eternal treasures are empty because of your misaimed focus? Why be, Jesus will ask next week, rich in things of earth when you could be rich towards God? Without a doubt, one of the biggest reasons for our the angst that even the disobedience of Christians both past and present is a lack of eternal perspective in all things. Let me say that again. It's important, isn't it? One of the biggest reasons for the angst and even disobedience of both Christians past and present is a lack of eternal perspective in all things. We are too focused on our short time on earth to be worried about the eternal. Too much time is spent on building comfort in this life to be overly concerned with the next. You know, one of the worst phrases in Christian parlance that I know you have heard is that one can be too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. Have you heard this phrase before? They're too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. Uh, What hogwash is that? I, I have never known someone in my whole life who is too heavenly-minded. Have you? I bet you haven't. If one is heavenly-minded, they'll be the most earthly good. The the problem was never, it's never been (laughs) that we were too heavenly-minded. The problem was and is that we are so earthly-minded that we may not be any heavenly good. That is the true threat. The problem is that people are thinking about eternity too much. It's that we aren't thinking about it enough. And why should we? Why should we? We live in a society where the reality of death is constantly put out of our minds. Isn't that true? As Peter Kreft said, we cover up the truth of death and eternity by a million diversions and pretenses. How do we, as people, deal with the reality of death and the terrifying thought that there's something beyond this world? Just think about it. There's lots of ways, aren't there? We do our best to abate death. We delay it through fitness, through diets, through plastic surgeries. We do it through distractions, like Kref said. We fill our time with busyness. After all, our lives can't be meaningless if we're always booked and in demand. And if we're busy, we simply won't have time to stop and think about eternity. We fill our lives with entertainment. The entertainment keeps us distracted and our lives noisy. We could laugh at death and divert our attention. There's enough, there is not enough silence in our lives to dwell too long on the eternal. Kierkegaard said, if I could prescribe just one remedy for all the ills of the modern world, I would prescribe silence. For even if the word of God were proclaimed in the modern world, no one would hear it. There's too much noise. Blaise Pascal said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. That's the problem, right? We don't want to sit quietly with our thoughts because then we'd have to consider death and eternity. We don't want to slow down long enough to consider that there's more than this world. All of these diversions are mistakes because Jesus clearly attaches heaven to earth. He says, how you live now. What you do now, what you say now, this will influence your eternity, which means that our lives on earth are too important, too short to spend not living for eternity. You see? See, we do the opposite, don't we? All of our goofy slogans, we say, you only live once. We say, life is short. We say, make the most of every moment. We sloganeer our way into distraction to validate our hedonism. But Jesus is saying it the other way. Life is too short to not live for the eternal. One of the reasons I think Bunyan, John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, has resonated so much, you know this is the most best-selling book in the history of the world apart from the Bible. And one of the reasons it's resonated so much through the centuries is because we know this thing that I'm talking about right now deep down we know that the main character Christian is doing what we should all be doing see through all the toils and struggles and speed bumps and pains and hardships Christian kept going he kept going but why because he had his sight set on the celestial city on heaven that's the key to the whole thing even when he was discouraged or afraid or he wanted to give up He pulled through and persevered when he remembered where he was going. When Christian and faithful get to Vanity Fair, for example, they're exposed to all kinds of things, all sorts of distractions to get them to stay in Vanity Fair and get them to go off their sacred path. Bunyan writes this of Vanity Fair. He says, at this fair, they sell such merchandise as houses, land, trades, places, Honors, promotions, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts and pleasures of all sorts, including things such as wives, husbands, children's, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, precious stones and much more. And all along with this, at this fair, there is constant round-the-clock entertainment. That sound like our lives? like juggling, cheats, games, plays, clowns, mimics, tricksters, and rogues, and other amusements of every kind. They had everything they could ever want to live life to the fullest in our language. And the thing was, Christian and faithful had to go through Vanity Fair to get to the celestial city. They couldn't circumvent it. There was no way around it. But when they did go through, they resisted. And do you know how? Because they set their eyes towards the celestial city. When the people of Vanity Fair turned on them for not buying their wares, and they cursed them, and they imprisoned them, what kept Christian and faithful from giving in or giving up? The reminder that they were going to the celestial city. When anxious, nervous, or afraid, where was their hope? That they were going to the celestial city. Do you see? Bunyan shows us a character who keeps their eyes on heaven, and this colors how they live in the world. Jesus here connects heaven and earth by saying, my confession of you in the thereafter is contingent on your confession of me in the right now. Confess me and I'll confess you. For only one who truly belongs to me, he says, can confess me in a meaningful way. Deny me then and I'll what? Deny me. You. Kreff says the reason we distract ourselves from the reality of death is because once you admit that there is death for us all, you find yourself at a crossroads with the realization that there are only two roads that lead anywhere from that crossroad. One leads to the kind of religion, Kreff says, the world can never be comfortable with. <laughs> and can never understand. The kind that is big enough, he says, to fill the infinite hole in the human heart, the kind bigger than life itself. And then the other road leads only to death and emptiness and diversion. Jesus lays bare before us the two choices of how to live in the world. Doesn't he? And he only gives us two options because once again, we see with Jesus, there can be no neutral ground. See, here's the key to the passage, all right? Here's the key to the passage. When Jesus says acknowledge, you see that word, acknowledge, he means more than a one-time event. We might think of acknowledging Jesus before men as simply like the moment of our conversion. Right? Or if we're thinking more broadly, we might think that it is both our conversion and if you know, someone happens to ask us if we're a Christian or for those persecuted Christians who must admit their faith if they're brought before the authorities, as he says in verse 11. But is that all that Jesus means by acknowledge or confess? Is Jesus speaking merely of a one-time converting declara- declaration or if prompted and that's it? You know me enough to know that's a setup, Right? He's talking about those two, okay? But he's talking about so much more than that. At issue here is the disciple's ability to express commitment to Jesus before people in all of life. This isn't about a one-time or two-time act. This is about a disposition of life. This is the key to what Jesus is saying here, okay? If you, if you write in your scripture journals, this would be worth it. If you see that word acknowledge in verse 8, Sometimes it's translated to confess, okay? But it carries with the idea of expressing allegiance. Expressing allegiance to Jesus as ruling king. It's about true allegiance. It means to accept Jesus' rule and to live in light of that rule. This is about what Jesus is getting at here, where one's allegiance in this world resides. That's what's at the root of this issue. Again, there could be no neutrality. There there is no neutrality. There is no middle ground offered by Jesus. You can't be like Sweden or Switzerland in World War II and abstain from a choice. You must choose whom your ultimate allegiance is given. And there's only two choices. Will it be Christ or self? Somebody's getting your allegiance, and it's one of those two, Christ or self. And once that choice is made... It must continue to be made in that you will be constantly confronted, do you realize this, with who you choose. This is why it isn't merely a singular moment where a singular choice is made. It's a posture of life. So when one converts and pledges allegiance to Jesus, they don't simply pledge to him and then move on with their life like they were before, and bonus, now they get heaven thrown in when they die. The initial pledge of allegiance is followed by a life of fidelity. That's what's being pictured here. Being a Christian means more than raising a hand or walking an aisle or repeating a prayer and then being assured that nothing more is necessary. As well-meaning as that may have been, the language we see here and elsewhere in the New Testament is that initial pledge of allegiance to Jesus is followed by a life of followership. Wherein, moment by moment, the disciple realizes they are at war, and they have to constantly choose a side. Even though, uh, you know, pledging allegiance to Jesus is eternally more significant, I like to illustrate this by considering, like, a military enlistment. You know, uh, when I was, when I enlisted, I was at 17 years old, I stood in a room in downtown Denver, and I raised my right hand, and I pledged before people that I would submit myself to the U.S. government that uh, I would obey the president and those appointed over me. I would defend the Constitution, and if it cost me my life, well, them's the breaks, right? But now, if I had walked out of that room and went back to my normal teenager life, what would that oath do for me? What was the point of taking that oath at all? Nothing at all, for I clearly didn't mean it. Or say I went to basic and all that, took this oath, went to basic, constantly disobeyed, (laughs) constantly shirked my responsibilities, constantly refused to do my job right, or simply didn't show up to work. I'd be saying that I never took that oath seriously. When we acknowledge Christ before men initially through pledging our allegiance to Jesus and then doing so publicly in baptism, this is to lead to a life of submission to Jesus, wherein we are constantly acknowledging him before men through our words and life. We're pledging allegiance, then allowing that pledge to flow out. Do you guys see? To a life of of allegiance, of obedience and submission to Jesus the King. Every choice in your life, you must realize this, is really a question. And that question is Jesus or self? Every choice you make, who will you obey? Where is your allegiance found? This doesn't mean that you'll always make the right choice. For then we would be sinless, (laughs) yes, because every choice that doesn't choose Jesus and his way is what we call sin, and Jesus doesn't expect you will make the right choice every time either, because he knows sin remains. This is why there's forgiveness available in verse 10, right? But he does expect more and more for our lives to come under his rule. He expects us to realize these choices laid before us and more and more make the right call. That's called growth. Do you know that? That's called sanctification. And it's a lifelong process. So the first step is to see that there's a choice to be made. The second step is to see that the choices we make, even the most mundane, matter. And the third step is to choose to obey Jesus, not ourselves. Joe Rigney put it this way, we live in a world of forked roads where every path regularly and repeatedly branches into two mutually exclusive directions. Our task is to reject the illusion that in the end all paths lead to the same place. We must choose and our choice will make all the difference. Our little decisions when gathered together turn out to not be so little after all. We are always sowing the seeds of our future selves. And see, while there are all kinds of things we could choose well, there are all kinds of idols that we could serve, all of them must be boiled down to what is really being chosen, Christ or self. We know money is an idol, right? We know stuff and accumulating more and nicer stuff can be an idol. We know comfort can be an idol. We know sex can be an idol. We know success can be an idol. We know acceptance can be an idol. We know power can be an idol. We know politics can be an idol. And we go on and on and on and on and on. But while all these are all all kinds of idols, what stands behind them all? Self. The idol of self. We want money so we could get things for ourselves. We want stuff because we think we deserve nicer things. We want success because then people recognize and applaud us. We want power for us and our people to get what we want. We want all kinds of pleasures so we can feel gratified. We give allegiance to a political party that can do no wrong in our eyes because we believe that party will what? Help our lives be better. Do you see? You think back to our study of Jonah. Jonah, we know, is a nationalist who was disobedient uh, to his call from God because he didn't think his enemy should have an opportunity of redemption. But what's really the problem? It came down to self, didn't it? He loved Israel because he was an Israelite. He loved Hebrews because he was a Hebrew. He hated Nineveh and didn't want them to be spared because he wondered what implications there would be for him. It came down to Jonah being most concerned about Jonah. And this flowed out to all kinds of disobedience and sin. If Jonah had to choose between Jonah and anything else, Jonah won every time. So truly, all choices of allegiance come down to the basic choice between God and ourselves. Who will we be loyal to? Who will we sacrifice for? Who will, be, who will we be uncomfortable and change for? Even when it comes down to a choice to obey or disobey Jesus, this is the case. Why don't we forgive others? Why do we withhold forgiveness? Because someone has to absorb the cost. And if it's between us and them, what? What well, should be them? Why don't we take up a cross? Because we, we shouldn't have to deny ourselves. Why do we reject discomfort? Because we deserve to be comfortable. Why don't we make disciples? Because we're too busy doing things for us. I'd go on and on for days with this, right? But you get the point, don't you? The choice is before us at all times. Allegiance to Christ or allegiance to self. What will we choose? And see, we can misunderstand what Jesus is saying here about denying him. This, is, this also isn't a one-time act, okay? This is a posture of life. This is an ongoing way to live. This is about obeying Christ and thus acknowledging him before men, or disobeying him and thus denying him before men. Do you see? See, you may not stand before a Roman governor who asks you if you will renounce Christ and offer a pinch of incense to Caesar. We knew this won't happen to you. What will happen to you is peer pressure, where you're faced with a choice to give in to the sins of your peers and thus win or keep their affections or risk their frowns because of your allegiance to Christ. In the former, you're denying Christ. In the latter, you are acknowledging him. What will happen is the societal pressure to forsake the ethics of Jesus for favor and capitulation for and to the world. To say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't go too far, like some of these other fanatics do. What will happen is cordoning off some aspect of your life where you don't believe the gospel should touch. What will happen is coming to some truths of scripture and finally they don't align with what you desire or prefer and having to choose whether you reject scriptural calls or change your thinking to align with Jesus. What will happen is filling your mouth with vitriol towards image bearers because you don't want to be ostracized from your friends and you'd rather join in with them than rebuke them. What will happen is having an opportunity to talk about Jesus to a friend or a neighbor or a fellow parent or coworker and staying quiet because you're afraid to be uncomfortable or rejected. In those scenarios, we see the way the choice is always laid before us, and we see that we can deny Jesus with our lives. It isn't just in what we say. It's in what we say, don't say, and how we live. William Barclay said... There could be a menace of things unsaid in the Christian life. Again and again, life brings us the opportunity to speak some word for Christ, to utter some protest against evil, to take some stand, and to show what side we're on. Again and again, on such occasion, it is easier to keep silence than to speak. But such a silence is a denial of Jesus Christ. It's probably true that far more people deny Jesus Christ by cowardly silence than by deliberate words. But see, I want you to consider this now. This isn't the first time we've come across this word deny in Luke's gospel, is it? Last time we saw it, it was out of Jesus' mouth too. And do you remember what he said? I'll tell you. It's in 923. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So really, Jesus does want us to deny something, doesn't he? He wants us to deny ourselves. So there's the choice, right? Deny Jesus or deny self. Someone is going to be denied. So who will it be? Who will be denied, self or Christ? The more we die to self, the more we can live for Christ. The less co- we're concerned with ourselves and our rights and our fairness and our comfort and our preferences and our and our and our and my and my and my, the more we could be about submitting to Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, no man can practice what our Lord illustrates unless he has finished with himself, with his rights to self, his right to determine what he shall do, and especially must he finish with what he commonly called the rights of self. In other words, we must not be concerned about ourselves at all. The whole trouble in life is ultimately this concern about self. And what our Lord is inculcating here is that it is something of which we must rid ourselves entirely. We must rid ourselves of this constant tendency to be watching the interests of self. All that must disappear. And that, of course, means that we must cease to be sensitive about self. George Mueller is a name you might be familiar with. Uh, He lived in the 19th century. Uh, and is well-known as someone. He opened over 100 orphanages, and uh, he cared for over 120,000 children in his life. One of the reasons he's well-known is because he never fundraised. He never fundraised a day in his life. He he rarely would accept financial support. He never went asking for help. (laughs) All he did was Pray. All he did was pray, and, and his, the children had all they need. They never went one meal without food. Well, Mueller once wrote this in his journal. He said, there was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller and his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will, died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends, and since then I have studied only to show myself approved to God. That's it right there. That's the posture Jesus is after. It isn't that Mueller reached some level of Christian perfection never seen before or since. It's that Mueller said, I must die so that I could live for Christ and kingdom. Then he lived in light of that. He said, I'll die to my own opinions, preferences, tastes, and even my will. I'll die to the world, to the approval or censure from even my friends to seek to please God alone. This is what Jesus is calling for. Deny self so that you won't deny Jesus because if you live with a posture of denying Jesus and denying Jesus and denying Jesus and there's no attempt whatsoever to bring one's life in line with Christ, no attempts, whatever, of denying self, then what will happen if we die still denying him? He will deny us before the Father and the angels. Now, does this mean there is no forgiveness if one denies Jesus? That can't be the case, right? That, that, that's not what he means at all. Jesus is clear about that even here, isn't he? But he does say that one cannot be forgiven for blaspheming the Spirit. So what's going on here? It's related, see? Because if you die having denied Christ all of your life and never repented, then Christ will deny you and you will not be forgiven. That's what he's saying. It is a full and final denial that leads to death okay? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you understand, is to call the Holy Spirit a liar when he comes and shows you the truthfulness of Jesus and of your sin and the necessity of salvation in Christ alone and calls you to give saving allegiance to him. So similarly, if you die having called the Holy Spirit a liar and you never repent and turn to Jesus, you will not be forgiven. Well, blasphemy against the Spirit is to tell the Holy Spirit that his testimony about Jesus is not true, It's to tell him that you are not a sinner, or at least not that bad, that you either are not separated from God, that you don't need to repent, that Jesus didn't die in your place, that he didn't resurrect, that you don't need to be saved, and that you don't care what either he or Jesus said. Understand, this is not a one-time act. You could be convicted and convicted and convicted and tell the Spirit, no, 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 but eventually come to saving faith. And finally, cease resisting the Spirit's witness about Jesus in the gospel, and then you're acknowledging him before men and be saved. This isn't that, okay? This is, as John Paul II said, the radical refusal to be converted. So it is to live a life of rejecting the Holy Spirit's testimony, but die still refusing and rejecting. Matthew Bates explains it well, I think. He said that irreversibility is not due to God's lack of willingness to forgive should repentance occur, but rather to the inability of the blasphemer to take the initiative to repent. It seems best then to suggest that the lack of a possibility for forgiveness arises from the human side rather than from the divine. God would forgive the one who blasphemed the Spirit if the person could right the ship enough to see good as good and evil as evil and in so doing begin to choose God in returning to God. But now... If you are a Christian, you cannot commit this sin. You cannot commit the unpardonable sin. Because the fact that you are a Christian means that you believe the Spirit's testimony about Jesus. As G.I. Packer said, Christians, fear, Christians who fear that they have committed the unpardonable sin show by that anxiety that they have not done so. So you can be forgiven speaking against Jesus, but if you die having not repented or denying the Holy Spirit's testimony about Him and thus be saved, then you will go on being denied by him eternally. I think, uh, let's use a biblical illustration. I think this will help us think clearly about this. I want you to picture the Last Supper, okay, in the upper room, right before Gethsemane and the night before the crucifixion, okay? (laughs) Jesus and his disciples, they're having one last meal together, right, before the atonement, and Jesus says, you remember, he says, one of you will betray me, and one of you will deny me. And Judas, of course, is the former, and Peter the latter. Judas leaves the meal, you guys remember, and he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. He leaves the authority to Jesus in order for him to be arrested. Judas was looking out for Judas, wasn't he? The choice was deny self, right? Or deny Jesus. And what did Judas choose? Deny Jesus for his own ease and comfort. Well, Jesus tells the disciples, someone will deny him, and Peter insists it won't be him. Do you guys remember that? He said, look, all these other jabronis might deny you. They might run away, but I'll stay, and I'll die for you, actually. And Jesus says, brother, you're going to deny me tonight, and you're going to do it three times. Uh, before the rooster even crows. Now, you fast forward to Judas' betrayal in the garden, and Peter turns out to not be so brave after all, right? He runs away like the rest of them. Now, not long after, he's warming his hands by the fire. A little girl is what the Greek says. (laughs) A little girl comes up to him and says, Mr., you were with Jesus. And Peter says, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, hey, you're one of Jesus' disciples. Peter said, No, I'm not. Then a little bit later, someone came up to him and said, Hey, you're one of Jesus' friends. Your accent betrays you. To which Peter actually invokes an oath and a curse and says, I don't know this man. I don't know what you're talking about. Sure enough, just then a rooster crows. And you know what's interesting is in Luke's gospel, to heighten the tension, it says that Peter, after he denied Jesus that third time, he looked across the courtyard. And he caught Jesus' eye. Now, once Judas realizes what he's done, he's driven to sorrow. Once Peter realizes what he's done, he's driven to sorrow and he weeps bitterly. But Judas' denial does not lead him back to Jesus. He never repents. He never goes back and asks for forgiveness. He dies having never sought nor been given forgiveness. He denies Jesus on earth, and he never seeks to have Jesus reverse this denial, so Jesus, Judas will deny, Jesus will deny Judas in heaven. Now what about Peter? Post-resurrection, Jesus makes his friends breakfast, and he looks Peter square in the eye across the fire, he says, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I- you know that I love you. And three times, Jesus asked this, and three times Peter affirms his love for Jesus. One affirm- affirmation for every to cancel out each denial. And Peter is restored and he lives the rest of his life denying himself and confessing Christ. Do you guys see the difference here? They both denied Jesus, but only one of them was restored because only one of them went back to Jesus. And the love of Christ overcame him, Only one of them repented of their blasphemy. Peter denied Jesus because he cared what people thought, even a little girl. He denied him because he didn't want to face the repercussions of his associations with Jesus. Is that not why we deny Jesus too? We're afraid of dying to ourselves, afraid that there might be some repercussions in our lives for our associations with him. But see, Peter realized the error of it, didn't he? He knew denying Jesus wasn't worth the pains or embarrassments he was trying to avoid, and he returned to Jesus, who we must realize will forgive, even speaking against him if you seek his forgiveness. Unlike Judas, who stubbornly died, having never been restored, Peter is forgiven lavishly by Jesus because he realizes his sin, he's contrite and repentant, and Jesus freely forgives. And you see what Jesus says more about the Holy Spirit here, don't you? He says that when you are brought before the authorities, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. Now, you know what's interesting about that? After the Holy Spirit is given to the disciples and Peter preaches on Pentecost and the Jesus movement is spreading, Peter and John are preaching in the temple. They get arrested for talking about the resurrection and for healing in Jesus' name, and they stand before these authorities. Let me tell you what Luke says in Acts. He says, when they placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stand here before you in good health. He is the stone which you rejected, but which came the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which he must be saved. And this amazed the religious authorities. (laughs) And they ordered Peter and John don't speak the name of Jesus anymore. Don't talk about the resurrection anymore. And you know what they said? Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. What a change! For Peter. Peter went from denying Jesus when his little girl asked to being empowered by the Holy Spirit to boldly tell the authorities that he could not care less what they thought and that he was going to preach Jesus whether they liked it or not. What can account for such a change? The love and forgiveness of Christ along with the indwelling Spirit who guides and empowers. Don't you see? So how then, my friend... Can you be someone who acknowledges Jesus before men? How can you be someone who is changed from a Christ denier to a self-denier? How can you be someone who goes from caring what people will think if you give too much of yourself to the gospel, to someone who lives for Jesus with reckless abandon? How can you be someone who chooses Christ over self more often than not? How can you be the type of person who lives their whole life informed by allegiance to Jesus? How can you be someone who has the courage to say to those who would oppose you simply due to your attachment to Jesus that you will go on professing the gospel of the king and living for his approval and not theirs, come whatever may? Well, like Peter, is to see the beauty and love of Jesus to see his sacrificial love, to see that he is so full of mercy and forgiveness that he can at once be looked in the eye following a denial to looking you in the eye and restoring you. There's forgiveness available for Christ deniers and for spirit blasphemers. There is new life possible. There is life being offered that lives for another world if you would but repent and bend your knee to him. You know what happens then? You know what happens after that? He gives you the Holy Spirit. And he indwells you so that you don't have to be anxious when faced with opposition. He'll tell you what to say. He'll give you the courage if you rely on him. He'll make you bold. He'll empower you to deny self and acknowledge Christ rather than vice versa. He'll help you kill sin. He'll help you in all things because he delights in your turning more and more to Christ and in your turning more and more in Christlikeness. Let me tell you another story quickly. Thomas Cranmer was Archbishop of Canterbury and he served uh, King Henry VIII. Well, <clears throat> during the reign of Bloody Mary, England was returned to Catholicism after this short time um, and all Protestants were called to recant all right, uh, of their alleged heresy lest they be burned at the stake. They said, recant of your Protestantism, return to the papacy, or you will be killed. Cranmer encouraged others to remain faithful, but the pressure was too much for him, okay? And uh, he ended up privately recanting his Protestantism and declaring that he would submit once more to the authority of the Pope. Well, Mary didn't want this recanting to be private, so he was ordered to publicly recant from the pulpit of University Church in Oxford. Well, much to the surprise of the throne, Cranmer publicly denounced his private recantations. He recanted his recanting. He also denied papal authority, and knowing that he would be immediately executed, he declared that he would punish the hand that originally signed the recantations by burning it first. They pulled him from the pulpit. Cramer was tied to the stake where his companions Latimer and Ridley died just five months earlier, and fulfilling his word, he stuck his hand in the fire first, crying out as he died, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Well, Cranmer, like Peter before him, denied his Lord. He was afraid, and who could blame him? But like Peter, he repented and was empowered to boldly proclaim Jesus even unto death. You probably won't have a dramatic experience like that in your life. The authorities likely won't come to you and tell you to renounce Jesus. You probably won't be burned at the stake like Polycarp and Cranmer. You probably won't be on trial for being a Christian. You probably won't even ever be fired from your job for being a Christian or even lose many friendships. But you will be called this very day to compromise. This very day. You will be wondering if you should deny yourself or deny Christ in temptation. You may withhold sharing the gospel with someone because you're afraid of rejection. You might participate in gossip because you want to be liked. You might give in to peer pressure because you don't want to lose your peers' favor. You might book yourself solid so that you could try to fill the void that Jesus is supposed to occupy. You might withhold forgiveness from someone because you don't want to pay the cost. You might look down on image bearer who is different than you. You might move from the biblical ethic because you want to be well-liked and accepted by the unrepentant. You might forsake scripture reading and prayer because mindless entertainment seems like a better use of your time. You might do everything you can to make yourself comfortable in this world while giving little mind or effort to the next. It's in that space that Jesus would look at you and ask, do you love me? Not to try to guilt or shame you, but to ask, who is your allegiance to? And if you would internalize moment by moment and decision by decision the beauty and love and wrath-bearing atonement of Jesus that speaks to his free forgiveness to the repentant and you lean once more on the Holy Spirit to empower you, you'll find less and less the draw to allegiance to anything but Jesus.